Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have a guest, uh, Randall Rouser. I've appreciated uh, looking at his blog and reading some of his books. I'll go ahead and read his bio here. This is uh, Randall Rouser's professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta. He's the author of many books, including The Swedish Atheist, The Scuba Diver, and Other Apologetic Rabbit Trails. And You're Not As Crazy As I Think, Dialogue in a World of Loud Voices and Hardened Opinions, and uh, Randall Blogs and Podcasts as the Tentative Apologist. I love that name at uh, randallrouser.com. And we'll include uh, uh, contact information and other things in the program notes. But Randall, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed your work for a while now. And uh, at the uh, Multifaith Matters website, we've got, we try and have the select recommended books on uh, related to multi-faith issues and uh, i've got uh, one of yours out there just because i've always appreciated you bring a, a keen mind to this subject matter and in my experience i don't see a whole lot of folks associated with especially more at least in conservative christian circles a a humility uh, a willing to approach the other in relational kinds of terms so i know we're going to in our conversation bring out uh, the best of some of those things. So I just want folks to be aware. Um, what's interesting, if you look at the Pew Forum, uh, some of their surveys, um, it says that Christians consistently exhibit cool feelings towards atheists, second only to Muslims. They use a feelings thermometer. The cooler feelings are the more negative, warmer, the more positive. And consistently, evangelicals over a number of years have had these cool negative feelings towards atheists, Muslims, and other groups. We're going to talk about atheists today. Now, as you have seen other Christians relate to atheists, has this been your experience? Do you, do you tend to see these negative, cooler emotions? And if so, why do you think our feelings are so poor towards them? Yes, uh, definitely. I've, I've Anecdotally, I see a, a lot of hostility toward atheists. Uh, I think often it is born of... Um, assumptions about what atheism is. So in fact, I wrote one of my books was called, Is the Atheist My Neighbor? And it looks at an idea that I call the rebellion thesis. And according to the rebellion thesis, uh, all atheism, all disbelief in God's existence is born of a sinful refusal to accept Christ's lordship or God's existence and to submit to him. And instead the desire to place oneself as the one God to whom one is accountable. And people who hold the rebellion thesis, it's been very dominant in the Christian tradition. One can try to justify it through appeal to texts, in particular Romans chapter one, where Paul talks about people being without excuse because of God's existence in nature, having been revealed in nature. And I think frankly that that's a proof texting of, of Paul, and I don't wanna get into that whole debate here, but I do wanna say that if, if you interact with atheists with the starting assumption that they are sinfully repressing their actual belief in God, then yeah, you're going to have a negative attitude toward them. And I think from that point, 
we can sort of follow a confirmation bias where we look for evidence that simply reinforces that assumption. So we look for evidence of atheists who act in a way that is hostile toward Christians. That seems to be condescending, perhaps showing some sort of um, uh, blasphemy of our beliefs and so on. And then we, we count those all as instances of true atheism. And when atheists interact with us in a way that doesn't conform to those assumptions, we tend to downplay that. And so then you end up getting these deeply entrenched positions where Christians often do look at atheists precisely in that way as suspicious and definitely cool and hostile. Does the, uh, the moral dimension play a part in that? I, I see many times uh, in, also in surveys the assumption amongst uh, many Christians that atheists must be immoral. And that's why uh, you tend not to see, I don't know, I think it's going to be a while before an atheist can be elected president of the United States because of some of these biases and assumptions. Now, it's one thing, I think, I'm not a philosopher here, I'm going to defer to you. It's one thing to say whether or not a, an atheist has the epistemic ground appropriately for morality, but that doesn't mean necessarily that atheists are immoral. Do you think that perception of immorality might play a part? Yes, uh, that's critically linked to this, because of course, when, when you are denying God's uh, existence and his lordship over your life, uh, and if you equate as a Christian the existence of God with moral standards and moral obligations, then it all kind of follows that those people are refusing to submit to God and to live in accord with his plans for your life. So uh, so that all just kind of follows. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think that the best way to challenge those kinds of assumptions is to actually get out and talk to people and find out how many atheists are deeply committed to various moral projects and moral uh, uh, seeking to actualize a good society in a way that to various ways Christians can appreciate and share common cause with, because that will really help to attenuate or qualify, if not to outright repudiate those assumptions. Now, one thing I would just add here, which kind of gets back to what you talked about uh, in terms of epistemic status, and that is we often have this question, can, can we be good without God? And it is a fundamentally ambiguous question, which makes it in many respects not a very good question. Because often the, the, the question can mean, can a person have a metaphysical ground for absolute objective moral value and obligation uh, apart from God or a theistic foundation? That's one question. But another question is, can a person live a moral life? Can, can they be the kind of person that I would want as a neighbor while not being a theist? And that's another kind of question. And I think the, the latter question, the answer is undoubtedly yes. So whatever you think about the former question about whether a person can have an adequate ground for moral obligation or value uh, while being an atheist, whatever you think of that question, it is undoubtedly the case that there are many people who live morally upright lives in a way that we can often admire much of what they do and how they live, and yet they are atheists. And so we need to start with that and then build from there, I think. Okay. I've come to the conclusion over the years uh, that our our, our theology and, and our praxis is in many ways uh, biographical. We're all on a journey and we've had experiences and it's not just something that falls in our lap from heaven and uh, it's, it's completely objective. I've had my journey that's led me to this approach with uh, people in other religious traditions. How did you get to this place where you were interested in responding? You, you do other things, but there's a big focus on uh, interacting with atheists. How'd you get to this place where atheism was something you wanted to spend so much time with and why the way in which you do it? 
On the one hand, atheism is a relatively small phenomenon within society. I mean, while it is growing, uh, and it, I'll say it has grown by leaps and bounds in Europe. I lived in England for two years, and I think more than 35% of the population in England is avowedly atheist. So, uh, and if you go to a place like Scandinavia, it's, it's really very much the majority. But nonetheless, in North America, and I'm in Canada, but in Canada and the United States, it's still very much a minority, maybe 8% or something of the population. But atheism is part of a, a much broader secularist agenda or movement, a set of assumptions about removing religion from the common sphere of life and discourse. And so often people adopt this simplistic distinction between facts and values, and facts are what science deals with, and that's what belongs in the public square, and values are your religious convictions or whatever else, and you should just keep those to yourself. And those assumptions are much more influential in society. In fact, in many ways, I think they dominate the public square in North America. So uh, atheism is often sort of just the, 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 the tip of the spear, as it were, and the spear is a much broader secularist movement. And so I think uh, if you want to engage with, with broader unchurched society in North America, it's pretty tough to avoid having those kinds of conversations. And so I've just naturally found myself being pulled into them over the last 25 years. With the rise of uh, the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, uh, which includes a segment of atheists and agnostics, as well as people. I think that if I read the data correctly, it's largely a shift from uh, institutional, traditional kinds of spiritual affiliations to more individual questing, non-institutional. But there's a segment uh, of atheists and agnostics. Have you seen an increase in that in your own experience? I think both there's evidence for the growth of nuns, people who, I mean, often it's put in sociological terms, you know, what is your religious affiliation that you would put on a survey? Uh, and so traditionally people would just sort of default check off Christianity or something else. And today they're much more inclined to just check none. Like I have no religious affiliation. One thing I would say is that uh, the growth of the nuns is in some respects a positive. And the way that I would look at it as a positive is that for, for a long time, people, they would just check Christianity without really thinking about it because it was part of the culture that they were in. And I think often that can mask the fact that people are not really committed Christians at all. It's just what you do is you say you're a Christian. And as the saying goes, if everybody's a Christian, then nobody's a Christian because Christianity should ultimately be about this radical sense of discipleship, taking up one's cross and so on. So the fact that people now are more inclined to default to none, I think is helpful in the sense that it just actually shows often where people's religious affiliation really is at and it gives us a greater clarity about how to engage them. Now anecdotally I do think that there has been an increase in the nuns and also in another group we often call the duns, so D-O-N-E-S, people who are just, they have been a part of religious community but they have just maybe been burnt out, alienated by it, and they're just pulling out. I think in the I, my guess is that in, with the amount of, of uh, Republicans who have rallied behind Donald Trump in a sort of uncritical, unthinking way, and sort of aligned Christian convictions with Donald Trump, you're probably seeing as well a, grow, a growth or boost in nuns, or in duns, people who were part of Christianity, but were told, if you wanna be a Christian, you gotta be in line with Donald Trump and, and his supporters. And to my mind, it's not so much about Donald Trump per se, it's about aligning Christianity with any socio-political movement or agenda tends to end badly. 
uh, because, because now when that movement shows itself to be incompatible with the kingdom of God to some degree, and virtually everyone does, then you've now damaged Christianity. And so I think you're going to continue to see a bump in the duns as well as the nuns. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the duns. I've read some interesting sociological studies on, on that group, and I, I think they're going to grow as well. And I think the stereotype is to think of them as so-called backslidden Christians, but many appear to be those who still retain a high interest in Christianity and a self-understanding of being Christian, but they see the institution of the church as hindering a vibrant Christian spirituality. So I think the church needs to wrestle with the rise of the nuns as well as the duns. Um, I know in my conversations uh, in multi-faith contexts that I have encountered a number of stereotypes that I've had about what other people believe and practice, and I've encountered uh, stereotypes about Christianity in my conversation partners. Have you experienced something similar for atheists? What are some of the stereotypes Christians might have about atheists, and what are some of the stereotypes they have about us? Some of the common views that Christians have about atheists, well, so one of them, of course, is, as I said, that they actually really do believe in God at some level, and they are sinfully suppressing that belief in God. Some years ago, Greg Kokel actually described it in these terms. He said, being an atheist is like trying to hold a large beach ball underwater. You're constantly struggling to repress the belief in God, but it just keeps popping up out of the water and you keep lapsing back into belief in God. There may be people like that. I mean, there, there, are, there may very well be people like that. But by and large, the people I meet are, are people who have, uh, they've searched for God. They, they haven't found him. Maybe they've suffered some trauma in their life. They were burnt by the church. All sorts of experiences have led them to finding themselves in non-belief. Sometimes they are really angry at the church or they seem to be angry at the God they don't believe in. Other times, however, they long for Christian faith. They long for there to be a God. At least so far as I can see, they do. They communicate that to me and yet they just can't find their way into belief. So I think that we have to be very careful about making common assumptions about a particular group. Now, conversely, some of the views that atheists have about Christians are that they are fatuous or simplistic, simple-minded, ignorant, uh, that they are, are prone to conspiracy theories, to rejecting science, uh, things like that. And so, uh, of course, you can find Christians that will reinforce that stereotype as well. But what you simply have to do is push back and point at the diversity of Christian opinion and the many Christians who exist at the highest levels of the academy and science, politics, etc., across the spectrum, and you can just hopefully begin to deconstruct some of those unhelpful stereotypes. One of the things I've seen in my experience is, particularly for conservative evangelicals, is our assumption that we bring what is valuable to the table in terms of conversation, that the other needs to hear from us, but there is less willingness to, to learn and to approach with a posture of humility that maybe we can learn something in the conversation. How has how have conversations with atheists and maybe even your debates, how has that sharpened your understanding of Christianity? Yeah, it's a great comment observation. If and there, there's this old saying about um, a, a Buddhist monk in this context who fills up a cup of water and then and then the, to a student who wants to learn. And then afterwards, he starts pouring more water in it. And the student says, you can't pour any more water. It's full already. And then the teacher says to him, by the same token, if you want to, to learn from me, you first have to empty your cup and then be able to receive what I have to give you. But right now your cup's already full. 
And I think that uh, Christians often fall into that trap where we enter into a conversation with our cups already full. We already assume because we know Jesus, uh, we found eternal life and that, that we've got it all figured out and we don't have anything to learn from anybody else. People quickly pick up on that. And if, if you're not really interested in hearing what other people have to say, they're not gonna be interested in hearing what you have to say. So Henry Nouwen puts it like this, listening is the highest form of hospitality. If we really wanna be hospitable, we have to be willing to learn from and listen to others. Uh, in terms of my own experiences in dialoguing with, with atheists, give one example. Uh, so I, in one of my books, I wrote with Justin Schieber, an atheist and a Christian walk into a bar. Uh, we had a chapter where we really talked about the problem of theological disagreement. Schieber's basic argument was, well, if God really wants us to understand himself and his nature and what he requires of us in terms of our doctrinal belief and practice, he should be very clear in that. And yet there is great diversity, not only within the Christian tradition, where you can literally find 33,000 different denominations, but across the world, there's all this disagreement and debate about what God is, who, who he is, what he requires of us. How is that consistent with what you should expect as a Christian? And so Schieber forced me to really wrestle with the degree to which there is this ambiguity and debate within the world. And how do I make sense of that in light of my Christian beliefs? That's just one example. I think there are many others that when we begin to listen to the kinds of questions that other people have, there's certainly a lot that we can learn from them. Let's pick up a little bit off of that, that book that you mentioned that I found very helpful that you co-authored. Um, in that, the, what was interesting to me, what I was struck by was the format, this informal conversation. In a sense, you were still having a debate, but it was more, again, informal, conversational. Uh, why did you choose that format and how might that be uh, something that could translate very well and easily and effectively to the average Christian who wants to have a conversation with an atheist neighbor or contact? Yeah, so a few things. First of all, I think that it lends itself hopefully to a more readable interaction. Second thing is, uh, I think sometimes when you have the very technical debate books or counterpoint books where you have an essay and then a response and that, it's quite distant from the warp and woof of actual exchange in, in life. Because typically what you have is two people having a conversation going back and forth. And so when you have this sort of a one formal argument presented and then a formal response to it, that may lay out arguments and rebuttals. It doesn't as well lay out how you engage with a person in a back and forth, which is itself an independent skill that is worth acquiring. And so I think that we were trying to reflect on the importance of acquiring the skills of being able to uh, defend arguments and analyze one's uh, interlocutor's views through actual conversation and not just in a sort of artificial formal setting. Sort of like the, the distinction between studying, now, now I'm gonna qualify that, I'm gonna use a battle metaphor here, but I wanna qualify that because I'm always circumspect about using battle metaphors uh, when you're doing apologetics because these are not your enemies, right? Although they may hold contrary views, they're not your enemies. Having said that, there's a distinction between sort of studying battle plans at West Point in the classroom and actually getting onto the battlefield, the field of exchange and figuring out how you actually win a battle. And there's something to be said for that, I think, in terms of the, how do you actually uh, get through a conversation in a way that can winsomely and effectively present your views? It's interesting that you mentioned uh, 
battle metaphors, uh, I did a, a little informal personal study of the titles that evangelicals use in writing about other religious traditions and the battle metaphor is just all over the place. And so we're trying to, to model and impart a different way that one can yeah. you know, still have serious and strong disagreements, but doesn't mean we're always battling an enemy in the process. So I appreciate your sensitivity to that. Um, one of the other elements of what you do that I found very helpful that I don't see a whole lot, uh, particularly in apologetics, is uh, the inclusion of consideration of emotional intelligence, the affective dimension. Um, a part of what we did in our work was a two-year grant from the Louisville Institute bringing social psychology into conversation with theologies of multi-faith encounter. And we, we discovered that the affective dimension, the emotions were tremendously important and underappreciated, I think, by many evangelicals. Uh, how do you see emotions and that kind of thing being you know, maybe just as important as the rational element? How do you balance that together and how does it play a part in what you're suggesting we do as we relate to atheists? So if I could use a metaphor, I think that often, let's say you want to go fast down the road in your vehicle. Uh, people focus a lot in, in traditional apologetics on the engine, right? How, how much horsepower do you have? How much torque are you putting out? And what they don't focus on as much are the tires that you're running. And the tires are the things that connects the power of that engine to the asphalt and actually help you to move down the road. So if you don't have the right tires for the right context, then you're gonna end up spinning your wheels, right? If, if you have uh, summer tires and you're trying to drive on ice, you're getting nowhere. I don't care how much horsepower and torque you have. It's the same thing when it comes to arguments that uh, a lot of people that are drawn to apologetics, they often come to it with a very, maybe an engineer's mindset or something like that. They like to construct artificial abstract arguments and so on but they never consider how to make those winsome and engaging and attractive to their audience. And so then they end up investing in the engine, but not in the tires. And so then they don't end up connecting to the audience. That is the pavement and they don't go anywhere. And so the emotional intelligence cannot be underrated. It's important. It's just like you can't underrate the value of the tires. You really have to understand and consider, am I connecting with my audience? And in particular, do they want to agree with me? I mean, this is just a, it's a huge issue to, to think about. Um, if you interact with people in a way that kind of repels them, then they will look for a way to disagree, a reason to disagree with you, even if it's not a good reason. And so you can win the argument, but you can lose um, the person, which of course is what we really want is to win over people, not just win arguments. So you really have to think, how can I make this person want to agree with me? Uh, logic is great, but you also have to appreciate the value of credibility. And if you do not have credibility with an audience, uh, then in all likelihood, you're not going to reach them. Just to press that point a little bit further home for, for viewers and listeners, um, in terms of having people want to, I think evangelicals tend to put so much emphasis on truth with a capital T and the argument that they completely miss connection not only with their conversation partner, their audience and the emotions, but their own emotional connection to it and how that may actually hinder their efforts. To make sure you're, I understand the audience understands the, the significance of this. I remember years ago when I first moved out to Utah, a colleague who lived here invited me out. They have these, uh, or at least they used to, I think the church has changed this. The, the Latter-day Saint Church had these elaborate pageants where they were musicals and dramas and they would uh, reenact things from the Book of Mormon 
And it was really meaningful to their community. Thousands of people would come out. And a handful of evangelicals would go to these pageants and they would stand on public property and they would shout sermons and they would denigrate Mormon doctrine and the founder of the church and all this. And I was just struck by this jarring disjointing for evangelicals. And I, I wrote an unpublished paper on it. And evangelicals that read that paper just didn't get it. They said, but, but we're preaching the gospel. We're telling the truth. Are you saying that you can have the best argument in the world, maybe some great facts that are thrown in, you can be, try to be very persuasive, but you're still missing the boat if, you're, if your own emotions aren't appropriately driving with the audience? Why is this so important and why is it so missed? Yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, the, the thing is that those are great arguments against Christianity, ironically. Uh, it, it, I mean, it kind of reminds me, for example, this is going back many years now to the late 80s, but when The Last Temptation of Christ came out in the theaters, it was this very, seemed to be a very subversive film, kind of reinterpreting the life of Jesus. And it was, it did not get good reviews. It was not going to do well at the box office, but nonetheless, Christians rallied across the country picketing theaters that were showing the film. And that only provided more attention for the film. And the message was not this film is sacrilegious. The message is Christians want to control what movies you can and cannot see. That is not an effective apologetic. Now, uh, as you were talking, I just thought of this, a quote from, from the book Gravedigger File. So I just pulled it up here. It, it was a book written, uh, I don't know, in 1983, I think quite a while ago by Os Guinness. But this is what he says. Roman Catholicism is more likely to seem true in Ire than in Egypt, just as Mormonism is in Salt Lake City than in Singapore, and Marxism in Moscow than in Mecca. In each case, plausibility comes from a world of shared support. And so we have to appreciate that it is so much about so much more than the argument. It's about the whole culture, the disposition and character of the people, all of that as you present an argument is part of the way that people process the information that they are given. And depending on how you act with other people, it can draw or repel. And tragically, tragically what you described certainly sounds to me repelling. Yeah, it, it certainly appeared to be so. <laughs> um, what, are, are, what might you recommend to Christians about how they can relate more relationally and neighborly to atheists rather than uh, Again, anecdotally, but what I tend to see is the pop apologetic beat somebody over the head with an argument, and it's just on the arena of competing ideas, and, and so much is missed in that process. How can we be more effective in this? So the one thing is um, be very careful about social media. So the easiest way for most of us to come into encounter with the people that we disagree with is through social media. And because of the very nature of social media, it can quickly go off the rails. People can misunderstand one another. Uh, they can quickly retrench into their silos. And so if you are gonna go on social media, be very careful about that. Be intentional on choosing to interact with people that are likely to have a productive outcome. There are certain people that are just not ready for a charitable exchange. And I think for the most part, um, what I have to do, frankly, sometimes is just mute people. I, I typically don't block people uh, from, let's say, my, my Twitter stream. But, but if I find that people are just unremittingly negative and are not interested in a charitable exchange, then I have to mute them because it's not good for me to be seeing that. It's certainly a temptation to pull me into uncharitable and unhelpful debate with them. 
So I really try to, to choose the people that I interact with. And I think we have to, to do that as well, certainly on social media. Now, uh, it's also important if you are able to develop in-person relationships with people and to, to recognize that um, the most important thing that you can have, for, I think, for productive exchange across deep ideological divides is mutual trust and respect. And so that is something that typically comes through relationship building. And so it has to be something that it's not just a matter of an elevator speech, but we've actually gotten, taken the time to get to know people and actually share life with them, perhaps have mutual interests apart from our interest in debating one another that can also build bonds and so on of mutual respect. And then more likely, I think it's just kind of like the same, uh, the same mind shift that came with evangelism, right? Where we used to think about evangelism as accosting people in the street that you've never met before with a tract and trying to force them to convert versus being intentional about building shared life relationships with people and allowing the gospel just to emerge in the midst of those relationships. I think it's much more helpful in the latter when it comes to apologetics as well. I think all that's very helpful. I appreciate that. And I would I just add a little PS. I would encourage evangelicals especially to develop relationships with people, including atheists, regardless of whether or not they convert. Uh, we shouldn't objectify people or those relationships and allow those difficult but important conversations to come through that natural process of simply relating to and living with others. Um, you've got a, a new book out that about dialoguing with your inner atheist. Would you care to tell readers a little bit about that? Definitely. Um, let me just add to the really important point you just made, however. It, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that we develop relationships with people not to make converts out of them, but because we value them. We want to know more about them and learn from them as we share life with them and share what's important to us. People can discern pretty quickly if you are an Amway friend. Now, my <laughs> apologies to any Amway people out there. But we've all had experiences with people in multi-level marketing who kind of reached out to you and wanted to share a coffee or whatever. And you realized after you met with them that it was really just about getting you to sign up to whatever project that they're selling. And so if that's what Christianity is, you're going to repel people pretty quickly. So the latest book is called Conversations with My Inner Atheist. It is um, a sort of fictionalized interior monologue where I have with my inner voice of questioning and doubt uh, it's really twofold in terms of purpose. So the first is to deal with actual questions that I have, that I've wrestled with, some of which remain unresolved. Deep, difficult questions, I think, with Christian belief. And the other aspect of it is also to straw, to sorry, not straw man, but steel man, or give the strongest possible presentation of the views of other people, in this case, atheists or skeptics, so that I can really wrestle with them in their strongest versions. And so that's sort of the framework for the book. It involves a this dialogue between myself and what I call Mia or my inner atheist. And we go through 25 big questions, problems with Christian faith, and we kind of wrestle through them. So it's not a quick, easy Bible answer book. What it is, is meant to invite people into deeper reflection and conversation themselves so that they can better understand their own questions and also the perspectives of those with whom they disagree. It sounds like you're taking a very non-evangelical approach in terms of embracing and really wrestling with rather than simply rejecting doubt. Sadly, I think it is true that in, in some respects that is historically a non-evangelical view. But at the beginning of the book, I try to stress that uh, just as a boat is, is well served, both by having ballast in it that kind of steadies it, but also having the sails that catch the wind. So a Christian community 
is best served when it has both people that are kind of grounded in terms of faith and conviction, but also people that are willing to ask hard questions and explore difficult doubts. And together, collaboratively, uh, they serve one another in building a more intellectually and honest and robust community of faith. I appreciate that. I remember years and years ago when I came out of a Mormon splinter group as a young evangelical, a Bible verse that I was just really drawn to was the one that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that that tension there. And uh, yeah. so I appreciate what you're, you're doing in that book. Uh, Randall, I appreciate everything you're doing uh, in your writing and your blogging. And I, I will include, uh, we'll have the links to everything you're doing in the program notes. I encourage uh, viewers and listeners to, to seek out what Randall Rouser's doing, it uh, is a breath of fresh air in apologetics, and I think it's an important part of, of Christian discipleship in, in a world where we have an increase in the number of atheists. I've got atheists as family members, and we need to have conversations uh, and relationships with them just as sure as we do with people in various religious traditions. So I thank you for being my guest today. It's been an honor to be with you, John. Thanks for having me.